0: Section 21 of Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, the Warren Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, the Warren Commission Report by the president's commission on the assassination of president kennedy chapter five detention and death of oswald part two the abortive transfer in dallas after a person is charged with a felony the county sheriff ordinarily takes custody of the prisoner and assumes responsibility for his safekeeping. normally the dallas police department notifies the sheriff when a prisoner has been charged with a felony and the sheriff dispatches his deputies to transport the accused to the county jail. This is usually done within a few hours after the complaint has been filed. In cases of unusual importance, however, the Dallas City Police sometimes transport the prisoners to the county jail. The decision to move Oswald to the county jail on Sunday morning was reached by Chief Curry the preceding evening. Sometime after 7.30 Saturday evening, according to Assistant Chief Bachelor, two reporters told him that they wanted to go out to dinner, but that they didn't want to miss anything if we were going to move the prisoner. Curry came upon them at that point and told the two newsmen that if they returned by 10 o'clock in the morning, they wouldn't miss anything a little later after checking with captain fritz curry made a similar announcement to the assembled reporters curry reported the making of his decision to move oswald as follows then i talked to fritz about when he thought he would transfer the prisoner and he didn't think it was a good idea to transfer him at night because of the fact you couldn't see and if anybody tried to cause them any trouble they wanted to see who they were and where it was coming from and so forth and he suggested that we wait until daylight. So this was normal procedure, I mean, for Fritz to determine when he was going to transfer his prisoners. So I told him, okay. I asked him, I said, what time do you think you will be ready tomorrow? And he didn't know exactly, and I said, do you think about 10 o'clock? And he said, I believe so. And then is when I went out and told the newspaper people, I believe if you are here by 10 o'clock, you will be back in time to observe anything you care to observe. During the night, between 2.30 and 3.00 a.m., the local office of the FBI and the sheriff's office received telephone calls from an unidentified man who warned that a committee had decided to kill the man that killed the president. Shortly after, an FBI agent notified the Dallas police of the anonymous threat the police department and ultimately chief curry were informed of both threats immediately after his arrival at the building on sunday morning between 8:30 and 8:45 a.m. curry spoke by telephone with sheriff j.e. decker about the transfer when decker indicated that he would leave to curry the decision on whether the sheriff's office or the police would move oswald curry decided that the police would handle it because we had so much involved here, we were the ones that were investigating the case, and we had officers set up downstairs to handle it. After talking with Decker, Curry began to discuss plans for the transfer. With the threats against Oswald in mind, Curry suggested to Batchelor and Deputy Chief Stevenson that Oswald be transported to the county jail in an armored truck, to which they agreed. While Batchelor made arrangements to have an armored truck brought to the building, Curry and Stevenson tentatively agreed on the route the armored truck would follow from the building to the county jail. Curry decided that Oswald would leave the building via the basement. He stated later that he reached this decision shortly after his arrival at the police building Sunday morning when members of the press had already begun to gather in the basement. There is no evidence that anyone opposed this decision. Two members of the Dallas police did suggest to Captain Fritz that Oswald be taken from the building by another exit, leaving the press, waiting in the basement and on Commerce Street, and we could be to the county jail before anyone knew what was taking place. However, Fritz said that he did not think Curry would agree to such a plan, because he had promised that Oswald would be transferred at a time when newsmen could take pictures. Forrest Sorrells also suggested to Fritz, that oswald be moved at an unannounced time when no one was around but fritz again responded that curry wanted to go along with the press and not try to put anything over on them preliminary arrangements to obtain additional personnel to assist with the transfer were begun saturday evening on saturday night the police reserves were requested to provide eight to ten men on sunday and additional reservists were sought in the morning captain c e talbert who was in charge of the patrol division for the city of dallas on the morning of november twenty fourth retained a small number of policemen in the building when he took charge that morning and later ordered other patrolmen from several districts to report to the basement at about nine a m deputy chief stevenson instructed all detectives within the building to remain for the transfer Sheriff Decker testified that his men were ready to receive Oswald at the county jail from the early hours of Sunday morning with the patrolmen and reserve policemen available to him. Captain Talbert on his own initiative undertook to secure the basement of the police department building. He placed policemen outside the building at the top of the Commerce Street ramp to keep all spectators on the opposite side of Commerce Street. Later, Talbert directed that patrolmen be assigned to all street intersections, the transfer vehicle would cross along the route to the county jail. His most significant security precautions, however, were steps designed to exclude unauthorized persons from the basement area. The spacious basement of the police and courts building contains, among other things, the jail office and the police garage. The jail office into which the jail elevator opens is situated on the west side of an auto ramp cutting across the length of the basement from main street on the north side of the building to commerce street on the south side from the foot of this ramp on the east side midway through the basement a decline runs down a short distance to the l-shaped police garage in addition to the auto ramp five doors to the garage provide access to the basement from the police and courts building on the west side of the garage and the attached municipal building on the east. Three of these five doors provide access to the three elevators opening into the garage, two for passengers near the central part of the garage, and one for service at the east end of the garage. A fourth door near the passenger elevator opens into the municipal building. The fifth door at the Commerce Street side of the garage opens into a sub-basement that is connected with both buildings shortly after nine o'clock sunday morning policemen cleared the basement of all but police personnel guards were stationed at the top of the main and commerce streets auto ramps leading down into the basement at each of the five doorways into the garage and at the double doors leading to the public hallway adjacent to the jail office then sergeant patrick t dean acting under instructions from talbert directed 14 men in a search of the garage. Maintenance workers were directed to leave the area. The searchers examined the rafters, tops of air conditioning ducts, and every closet and room opening off the garage. They searched the interior and trunk compartment of automobiles parked in the garage. Two passenger elevators in the central part of the garage were not in service, and the doors were shut and locked. The service elevator was moved to the first floor and the operator was instructed not to return it to the basement. Despite the thoroughness with which the search was conducted, there still existed one and perhaps two weak points in controlling access to the garage. Testimony did not resolve positively whether or not the stairway door near the public elevators was locked both from the inside and outside as was necessary to secure it effectively. And although guards were stationed near the double doors, the hallway near the jail office was accessible to people from inside the police and courts building without the necessity of presenting identification. Until seconds before Oswald was shot, newsmen hurrying to photograph Oswald were able to run without challenge through those doors into the basement. After the search had been completed, the police allowed news representatives to re-enter the basement area and gather along the entrance to the garage on the east side of the ramp. Later, the police permitted the newsmen to stand in front of the railing on the east side of the ramp, leading to Main Street. The policemen deployed by Talbert and Dean had instructions to allow no one but identified news media representatives into the basement. As before, the police accepted any credentials that appeared authentic, though some officers did make special efforts to check for pictures and other forms of corroborating identification. Many newsmen reported that they were checked on more than one occasion while they waited in the basement. A small number did not recall that their credentials were ever checked shortly after his arrival on sunday morning chief curry issued instructions to keep reporters and cameramen out of the jail office and to keep television equipment behind the railing separating the basement auto ramp from the garage curry observed that in other respects captain talbert appeared to have security measures in hand and allowed him to proceed on his own initiative Batchelor and Stevenson checked progress in the basement during the course of the morning, and the officials were generally satisfied with the steps Talbert had taken. At about 11 a.m., Deputy Chief Stevenson requested that Captain O.A. Jones of the Forgery Bureau bring all available detectives from the third floor offices to the basement. Jones instructed the detectives, who accompanied him to the basement, to line the walls on either side of the passageway cleared for the transfer party. According to Detective T.D. McMillan Captain Jones explained to us that when they brought the prisoner out that he wanted two lines formed and we were to keep those lines formed, you know, a barrier on either side of them, kind of an aisle for them to walk through. And when they came down this aisle, we were to keep this line intact and move along with them until the man was placed in the car. With Assistant Chief bachelor's permission, Jones removed photographers who were gathered once again in the basement jail office. Jones recalled that he instructed all newsmen along the Main Street ramp to remain behind an imaginary line extending from the southeast corner of the jail office to the railing on the east side of the ramp. Other officers recalled that Jones directed the newsmen to move away from the foot of the Main Street ramp and to line up against the east railing. In any event, newsmen were allowed to congregate along the foot of the ramp, after Batchelor observed that there was insufficient room along the east of the ramp to permit all the news representatives to see Oswald as he was brought out. By the time Oswald reached the basement, 40 to 50 newsmen and 70 to 75 police officers were assembled there. Three television cameras stood along the railing, and most of the newsmen were congregated in that area and at the top of the adjacent decline leading into the garage. A group of newsmen and police officers, best estimated at about 20, stood strung along the bottom of the Main Street ramp. Along the south wall of the passageway, outside the jail office door, were about eight detectives, and three detectives lined the north wall. Two officers stood in front of the double doors, leading into the passageway from the corridor next to the jail office. Beginning Saturday night, the public had been kept informed of the approximate time of the transfer. At approximately 10.20 a.m., Curry told a press conference that Oswald would be moved in an armored truck and gave a general description of other security precautions. Apparently no newsmen were informed of the transfer route, however, and the route was not disclosed to the driver of the armored truck until the truck arrived at the Commerce Street exit at about 11.07 a.m., when they learned of its arrival, many of the remaining newsmen who had waited on the third floor descended to the basement. Shortly after, newsmen may have had another indication that the transfer was imminent if they caught a glimpse through the glass windows of Oswald putting on a sweater in Captain Fritz's office. Because the driver feared that the truck might stall if it had to start from the bottom of the ramp, and because the overhead clearance appeared to be inadequate, Assistant Chief Bachelor had it backed only into the entrance at the top of the ramp. Bachelor and others then inspected the inside of the truck. When Chief Curry learned that the truck had arrived, he informed Captain Fritz that security controls were in effect, and inquired how long the questioning of Oswald would continue at this point. Fritz learned for the first time of the plan to convey Oswald by armored truck and immediately expressed his disapproval. He urged the use of an unmarked police car driven by a police officer, pointing out that this would be better from the standpoint of both speed and maneuverability. Curry agreed to Fritz's plan. The armored truck would be used as a decoy. They decided that the armored truck would leave the ramp first, followed by a car which would contain only security officers. A police car bearing Oswald would follow after proceeding one block the car with oswald would turn off and proceed directly to the county jail the armored truck would follow a lead car to the jail along the previously agreed upon and more circuitous route captain fritz instructed detectives c w brown and c n doherty and a third detective to proceed to the garage and move the follow-up car and the transfer car into place on the auto ramp he told lieutenant rio s pierce to obtain another automobile from the basement and take up a lead position on commerce street deputy chief stevenson went back to the basement to inform bachelor and jones of the change in plans oswald was given his sweater then his right hand was cuffed to the left hand of detective j r laville detective t l baker called the jail office to check on security precautions in the basement and notified officials that the prisoner was being brought down on arriving in the basement, Pierce asked Sergeants James A. Putnam and Billy Joe Maxey to accompany him in the lead car. Since the armored truck was blocking the Commerce Street ramp, it would be necessary to drive out the Main Street ramp and circle the block to Commerce Street. Maxie sat on the back seat of Pierce's car, and Putnam helped clear a path through reporters on the ramp so that Pierce could drive up toward Main Street. When the car passed by reporters at about 11.20 a.m., Putnam entered the car on the right-hand side. Pierce drove to the top of the main street ramp and slowed momentarily as patrolman Roy E. Vaughn stepped from his position at the top of the ramp toward the street to watch for traffic. After Pierce's car left the garage area, Brown drove another police car out of the garage, moved partway up the Commerce Street ramp, and began to back down into position to receive Oswald. Doherty also proceeded to drive the follow-up car into position ahead of Brown. As Pierce's car started up the ramp at about 11.20 a.m., Oswald, accompanied by Captain Fritz and four detectives, arrived at the jail office. Cameramen in the hallway of the basement took pictures of Oswald through the interior glass windows of the jail office as he was led through the office to the exit some of these cameramen then ran through the double doors near the jail office and squeezed into the line which had formed across the main street ramp still others remained just inside the double doors or proceeded through the double doors after oswald and his escort emerged from the jail office when fritz came to the jail office door he asked if everything was ready and a detective standing in the passageway answered yes someone shouted here he comes additional spotlights were turned on in the basement and the din increased a detective stepped from the jail office and proceeded towards the transfer car seconds later fritz and then oswald with detective laville at his right detective l c graves at his left and detective l d montgomery at his rear came through the door fritz walked to brown's car which had not yet backed fully into position oswald followed a few feet behind newsmen near the double door moved forward after him though movie films and videotapes indicate that the front line of newsmen along the main street ramp remained fairly stationary it was the impression of many who were closest to the scene that with oswalds appearance the crowd surged forward according to detective montgomery who was walking directly behind oswald soon as they came out this door this bunch here just moved in on us. To Detective B. H. Comest, standing on the Commerce Street side of the passageway from the jail office door, it appeared that almost the whole line of people pushed forward when Oswald started to leave the jail office, the door, the hall. All the newsmen were poking their sound mics across to him and asking questions, and they were everyone sticking their flash bulbs up and around and over him and in his face. After Oswald had moved about ten feet from the door of the jail office, Jack Ruby passed between a newsman and a detective at the edge of the straining crowd on the main street ramp. With his right hand extended and holding a thirty eight caliber revolver, Ruby stepped forward quickly and fired a single fatal bullet into Oswald's abdomen. Possible assistance to Jack Ruby in entering the basement. The killing of Lee Harvey Oswald in the basement of police headquarters in the midst of more than 70 police officers gave rise to immediate speculation that one or more members of the police department provided Jack Ruby assistance, which enabled him to enter the basement and approach within a few feet of the accused presidential assassin. In chapter six, the commission has considered whether there is any evidence linking Jack Ruby with a conspiracy to kill the president. At this point, however, it is appropriate to consider whether there is evidence that Jack Ruby received assistance from Dallas policemen or others in gaining access to the basement on the morning of November 24th. An affirmative answer would require that the evidence be evaluated for possible connection with the assassination itself. While the commission has found no evidence that Ruby received assistance from any person in entering the basement, his means of entry is significant in evaluating the adequacy of the precautions taken to protect oswald although more than one hundred policemen and newsmen were present in the basement of police headquarters during the ten minutes before the shooting of oswald none has been found who definitely observed jack ruby's entry into the basement after considering all the evidence, the commission has concluded that Ruby entered the basement unaided, probably via the Main Street ramp, and no more than three minutes before the shooting of Oswald. Ruby's account of how he entered the basement by the Main Street ramp merits consideration in determining his means of entry. Three Dallas policemen testified that approximately 80 minutes after his arrest, Ruby told them that he had walked to the top of the Main Street ramp, from the nearby Western Union office, and that he walked down the ramp at the time the police car driven by Lieutenant Pierce emerged into Main Street. This information did not come to light immediately because the policemen did not report it to their superiors until some days later. Ruby refused to discuss his means of entry in interrogations with other investigators later on the day of his arrest. Thereafter, in a lengthy interview on December 21st, and in a sworn deposition taken after his trial, Ruby gave the same explanation he had given to the three policemen. The commission has been able to establish with precision the time of certain events leading up to the shooting. Minutes before Oswald appeared in the basement, Ruby was in the Western Union office located on the same block of Main Street, some three hundred and fifty feet from the top of the Main Street ramp. The time stamp on the money order which he sent. And on the receipt found in his pocket established the order was accepted for transmission at almost exactly eleven seventeen a m ruby was then observed to depart the office walking in the direction of the police building videotapes taken without interruption before the shooting established that lieutenant pierce's car cleared the crowd at the foot of the ramp fifty-five seconds before the shooting. They also show Ruby standing at the foot of the ramp on the Main Street side before the shooting. The shooting occurred very close to 1121 AM. This time has been established by observing the time on a clock, appearing in motion pictures of Oswald in the basement jail office, and by records giving the time of Oswald's departure from the city jail, and a time at which an ambulance was summoned for Oswald. The Main Street ramp provided the most direct route to the basement, from the western union office at normal stride it requires approximately one minute to walk from that office to the top of the main street ramp and about twenty to twenty five seconds to descend the ramp it is certain therefore that ruby entered the basement no more than two or three minutes before the shooting this timetable indicates that a little more than two of the four minutes between ruby's departure from the western union office and the time of the shooting are unaccounted for. Ruby could have consumed this time in loitering along the way, at the top of the ramp, or inside the basement. However, if Ruby is correct that he passed Pierce's car at the top of the ramp, he could have been in the basement no more than 30 seconds before the shooting. The testimony of two witnesses partially corroborates Ruby's claim that he entered by the Main Street ramp. James Turner, an employee of WBAPTV Fort Worth, testified that while he was standing near the railing on the east side of the Main Street ramp, perhaps 30 seconds before the shooting, he observed a man he is confident was Jack Ruby, moving slowly down the Main Street ramp, about 10 feet from the bottom. Two other witnesses testified that they thought they had seen Ruby on the Main Street side of the ramp before the shooting. One other witness has testified regarding the purported movements of a man on the Main Street ramp, but his testimony merits little credence. A former police officer, N.J. Daniels, who was standing at the top of the ramp with the single patrolman guarding this entrance, R.E. Vaughn, testified that, three or four minutes, I guess, before the shooting, a man walked down the Main Street ramp in full view of Vaughn, but was not stopped or questioned by the officer. Daniels did not identify the man as Ruby. Moreover, he gave a description which differed in important respects with Ruby's appearance on November 24th, and he has testified that he did not think the man was Ruby. On November 24th, Vaughn telephoned Daniels to ask him if he had seen anybody walk past him on the morning of the 24th and was told that he had not. It was not until November 29th that Daniels came forward with the statement that he had seen a man enter although the sum of this evidence tends to support ruby's claim that he entered by the main street ramp there is other evidence not fully consistent with ruby's story patrolman vaughn stated that he checked the credentials of all unknown persons seeking to enter the basement and his testimony was supported by several persons Vaughn denied that the emergence of Lieutenant Pierce's car from the building distracted him long enough to allow Ruby to enter the ramp unnoticed, and neither he nor any of the three officers in Lieutenant Pierce's car saw Ruby enter. Despite Vaughn's denial, the commission has found no credible evidence to support any other entry route. Two Dallas detectives, believe they observed three men pushing a wbaptv camera into the basement minutes before the shooting while only two were with the camera after oswald had been shot however films taken in the basement show the wbaptv camera being pushed past the detectives by only two men the suspicion of the detectives is probably explained by testimony that a third WBAP-TV employee ran to help steady the incoming camera as it entered the basement, probably just before the camera became visible on the films. Moreover, since the camera entered the basement close to four minutes before the shooting, it is virtually impossible that Ruby could have been in the basement at that time. The possibility that Ruby entered the basement by some other route has been investigated, but the commission has found no evidence to support it. Ruby could have walked from the Western Union office to the Commerce Street ramp on the other side of the building in about two and a half minutes. However, during the minutes preceding the shooting, videotapes showed the armored truck in the entranceway to this ramp with only narrow clearance on either side. Several policemen were standing near the truck, and a large crowd of spectators was gathered across the street it is improbable that ruby could have squeezed past the truck without having been observed if ruby entered by any other means he would have had to pass first through the police and courts building or the attached municipal building and then secondly through one of the five doors into the basement all of which according to the testimony of police officers were secured the testimony is not completely positive about one of the doors there is no evidence to support the speculations that ruby used a press badge to gain entry to the basement or that he concealed himself in a police car police found no form of press card on ruby's person after his apprehension nor any discarded badges within the basement there is no evidence that any police officer admitted ruby on the pretense that he was a member of the press or any other pretense. Police vehicles in the basement were inspected during the course of the search supervised by Sergeant Dean. According to Patrolman Vaughn, the only vehicles that entered the basement while he was at the top of the Main Street ramp were two patrol cars, one of which entered twice, and the patrol wagon, which was searched by another policeman after it entered the basement all entered on official police business and considerably more than four minutes before oswald was shot none of the witnesses at the top of the main street ramp recalled any police car entering the basement in the four minute period after ruby left the western union office and preceding the shooting the possibility that ruby could have entered the basement in a car may therefore be completely discounted the dallas police department concerned at the failure of its security measures conducted an extensive investigation that revealed no information indicating complicity between any police officer and jack ruby ruby denied to the commission that he received any form of assistance the fbi interviewed every member of the police department who was on duty in the basement on november twenty fourth and the commission staff members took sworn depositions from many with few exceptions, newsmen who were present in the basement at the time also gave statements and or depositions. As the record before the commission indicated, Ruby had either free access to the Dallas police quarters during the period subsequent to the assassination, but there is no evidence that implicated the police or newsmen in Ruby's actions on that day. Ruby was known to have a wide acquaintanceship with Dallas policemen and to seek their favor. According to testimony from many sources, he gave free coffee at his clubs to many policemen while they were on duty and free admittance and discounts on beverages when they were off duty. Although Chief Curry's estimate that approximately 25 to 50 of the 1,175 men in the Dallas Police Department knew Ruby may be too conservative, the commission found no evidence of any suspicious relationships between Ruby and any police officer the commission found no substantial evidence that any member of the dallas police department recognized jack ruby as an unauthorized person in the basement prior to the time sergeant p t dean according to his testimony saw ruby dart forward toward oswald but dean was then part way up the commerce street ramp too far removed to act Patrolman W.J. Harrison, Captain Glenn King, and Reserve Officers, Captain C.O. Arnett, and Patrolman W.M. Croy, were among those in front of Ruby at the time Dean saw him. They all faced away from Ruby, toward the jail office. Videotapes show that Harrison turned in the direction of the ramp at the time Lieutenant Pierce's car passed, and once again, 25 seconds later, but there is no indication that he observed or recognized Ruby. The policeman standing on the south side of the passageway from the jail office, who might have been looking in Ruby's direction, had the glare of television and photographer's lights in their eyes. The commission also considered the possibility that a member of the police department called Ruby at his apartment and informed him, either intentionally or unintentionally, of the time of the planned transfer. From at least 10.19 a.m. until close to 11 a.m. on Sunday, Ruby was at his apartment, where he could have received a call that the transfer was imminent. He apparently left his apartment between 10.45 and 11 a.m. However, the drive from Ruby's apartment to the Western Union office takes approximately 15 minutes. Since the time of the contemplated transfer could not have been known to anyone until a few minutes before 11.15 a.m., a precise time could not have been conveyed to Ruby while he was at his apartment. Moreover, the television and radio publicized the transfer plans throughout the morning, obviating the need for Ruby to obtain information surreptitiously. End of section 21